At the end of apartheid in South Africa in 1984, Nelson Mandela and the other leaders made a radical decision. Believing that vengeance only generates more vengeance and violence, the leaders, instead of seeking vengeance, tracking down, trying, and imprisoning the perpetuators of torture and murder of those who fought to end apartheid, the country would engage in truth and reconciliation. Those who had murdered and tortured could come forward, confess, and seek forgiveness from the families of their victims. The perpetrators would then go free. Philip Yancey tells this story. At one hearing, a policeman named Van der Brock recounted an incident when he and other officers shot an 18-year-old boy and burned his body to destroy the evidence. Eight years later, Van der Brock returned to the same house, seized the boy's father. His wife was forced to watch as the policeman tortured and killed her husband. The courtroom grew hushed as the elderly woman who had lost first her son and her husband was given the chance to respond. What do you want from Mr. Vanderbrock? the judge asked. She said she wanted Vanderbrock to go to the place where they burned her husband's body and gather up the dust so she could give him a decent burial. With head down, the policeman nodded in agreement. Then she added a further request. Mr. Vanderbrock took away my family, but I still have a lot of love to give. Twice a month, I would like for him to come to the ghetto and spend a day with me so I can be a mother to him. And I would like Mr. Vanderbrock to know that he is forgiven by God and that I forgive him too. I would like to embrace him so he could know my forgiveness is real. Spontaneously, some in the courtroom began singing Amazing Grace as the elderly woman made her way to Mr. Vanderbrock. But he didn't hear the hymn. He had fainted, overwhelmed. In this morning's text, Jesus challenges us to love our neighbor. The lawyer, he's really a student of the law, one who studies the Torah, wants to know exactly how far he has to go with loving. He wants to stay with what will make him comfortable, I think. He doesn't want to be challenged. He is, I think, like many of us, looking for the easy answer, maybe even the just answer. Aren't my neighbors just the people I know, the ones I know that if I love them, they will love me back? Instead of simply giving an answer, Jesus tells the story. Now, it's easy for us to hear the story and imagine we are the Samaritan, the good Samaritan. But isn't reality really different? Aren't we more like the two pious religious people who cross over to the other side, who want to avoid getting involved? How often have I turned my eyes away from the mother asking for change to feed her child? The dirty man with the cardboard saying, hungry, Vietnam vet. How often have I made excuses? 
How often have I said to myself, oh, it's better to give to an organization, the city mission, or maybe to Bethany's hunger program. How often, after saying this to myself, have I actually followed through with the donation? How often have I ignored the homeless, the hungry, the thirsty, the lonely? How often do I want to limit my love in a way that makes sense in the real world? The news this week has been horrific, and it raises the question of exactly who am I called to love? Innocent black men have been gunned down by the men paid to serve and protect them. Innocent policemen protecting Black Lives Matter protesters have been gunned down by a man seeking vengeance. Who is my neighbor? Who do I love? I want the easy answers. I want to know I can love one side and hate the other. I want to make one side the villain. Or maybe, just maybe, all I want to do is cross over to the other side of the road entirely because I don't want to get involved. Can I have an answer that makes me comfortable? The Belhar Confession, which some of you have studied, was adopted as a confession of our denomination, which means it is part of our Constitution at our Church's General Assembly last month. Belhar was a response to apartheid in South Africa. The whites, who controlled the Dutch Reformed Church in South Africa, decreed that the Church should comply with the doctrine of apartheid. Coloreds and blacks must worship in their own churches, segregated from each other and from white churches. Belhar takes a different position. Belhar declares that it is sin for the church to be divided by race or other divisions. Belhar declares that the church must be one in unity. It cannot be divided by race. Belhar goes further. It challenges the church to stand against oppression and injustice so that justice may roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Saying that we must stand against oppression and injustice and actually doing it are two vastly different things. The first hard question is, where do we begin? How can we even begin to think about this issue? Our new stated clerk, the Reverend J. Herbert Nelson II, said regarding our adoption of Belhar and in reaction to the events of this week, the assembly actions in adopting Belhar will have no meaning unless we, as people of faith, act to eradicate racism in our nation. Our efforts must begin in our own community and require courage. Racism is a cancer that has historically pervaded our society. It blatantly disrupts the flow of building Jesus' call of the beloved community. The Reverend Tanya Denise Anderson, our newly elected co-moderator, posted a suggestion for our response to these killings on Facebook. I have to tell you, 
Reverend Anderson tells it like it is. For those of you who ask how long or how many times must this happen, I'll tell you precisely when it will stop. It will stop when people en masse are aware of the ways which whiteness and white supremacy have shaped the way people of color are viewed, engaged, and treated in this world, even by other people of color. To come to this realization, however, white people will then have to become self-aware and convicted of the ways in which they have benefited from and promulgated the lie of whiteness. As necessary as this is for the well-being of society, it's also an uncomfortable undertaking, and there is literally, Reverend Anderson says, nothing forcing white people to do it. White people then will likely have to create the force. And she continues, White people, you have heard it said that you must talk to other white people about racism, and you must. But don't talk to them about their racism. Talk to them about your racism. Talk to them about how you were socialized to view, talk to, and engage with people of color. It's confession time. It's confession time. My first reaction is, I don't have anything to confess. But the reality is different. I don't want to examine my, my reality because deep down I know, even after all these years, even after all my work, there is something within me that says I am better simply because I am white. Rationally, I know this isn't true, but my gut tells me it is. Unless I become aware of it, this idea will shape how I act and react. I don't consciously intend my actions to be racist, but they may be. Reverend Anderson challenges us to think about white privilege. Now, this is a little easier for me than thinking about my own racism. We whites are like fish in the ocean. We are unaware of the water we swim in the water of our privilege. I grew up in the South. I was horrified to learn my family had owned slaves. A couple of years ago, I visited Latta Plantation outside of Charlotte. It's near the church my family went to in the 18th and 19th centuries. I noticed a little plaque near the granite steps to the front door. The steps the plaque said, were cut by a stonemason owned by James Latta. The slave had cut the stone for his home and also for many of the buildings built at that time in Charlotte. Latta profited from the work of this, his slave. On another visit, this time to a plantation in Louisiana, the docent told my son and I that in the years before the Civil War, 80% of the millionaires in the U.S. lived along the Mississippi River. They, too, profited from the work of slaves. My family profited from the work of their slaves. Northerners profited, too, from slaves, 
their own slaves, and from the slave trade. The South and our country as a whole has never had a conversation thinking about the wealth created for whites by slave labor or the wealth denied to those slaves or confessing the evil of owning human beings as slaves. White privilege? White privilege? I could go to any college I wanted to. The first African-American was admitted to my college the year before I enrolled. I can live anywhere I want to. My house was not firebombed because I wanted to live in the Shaker School District. No one suggested to me that I ought to file a lawsuit to make sure that housing covenants restricting sales to whites would not be enforced against me, as was suggested to Dr. Winston Ritchie when he decided to buy a house in eastern Shaker Heights. I've never been stopped by the police as I slowly rolled down the street on a dark winter night looking for the house I was to go to for a meeting, as former county commissioner Peter Lawson Jones was. My life expectancy is longer than for black or Hispanic women, simply because I'm white. I've never had to tell my son he shouldn't flirt with or even look at certain women. I've never worried that my son would be killed. I've never been awakened in the middle of the night and told my son had been gunned down while walking down the street in his hoodie. White privilege is a fact. Now, I don't ask the whites among us to examine your lives for white privilege so that you will feel guilty. There's no more guilt about white privilege than there is about the privilege that comes with being over six feet tall, which is an actual fact. It's simply a fact. Whiteness is a fact. I ask you to recognize, though, what being white has done for you, the advantages it has given you. I ask you to imagine how your life might have been different if you'd been born into a poor African-American family. Jesus tells us to love our neighbor. Jesus refuses to allow us to limit who our neighbor is. That neighbor includes the families of the men killed this week, all of them. That neighbor includes the men who killed this week, all of them. That neighbor includes the one sitting in this church who disagrees with you, Now, that may be the most comfortable of all. It's easy to love a neighbor from a distance. It's hard to love the neighbor next door. And we don't like conflict in the church. We've seen what conflict does to churches. We don't want to raise uncomfortable issues. We fear for the divisiveness that disagreement brings. We come to church to be comforted 
not challenged. Like the scholar of the law, we seek what makes us comfortable. If we, as Reverend Anderson suggests, begin with our own confession, with our own fears, our own misgivings, we may just be amazed by grace, as was Mr. Vanderbrock. Amen.